This is a podcast from Rover. He's been in solitary confinement in a Japanese prison, stabbed in Brazil, and bitten by a pit viper. The man with shitloads of stories, Captain Pete Bethune. So we've caught people doing that. Dana Shane, which is a legal form of bottom trawling. We've caught pulse fishing. They have a a chain on the bottom and they have a whole bunch of truck batteries. And every like half second, these 10,000 volts goes through it. So it it jolts little fish up off the seabed. And so it gets all the little fish that otherwise might slip under the chain. It makes all of them come and it stuns a lot of them. So they're unable to swim out. They sort of get stunned and float around in the water. So caught pulse fishermen. I've caught, you know, a pers- I caught a fleet of 15 boats, three big persainers and all the light boats and all the rest, 15 persainers in municipal waters fishing illegally. Like, if you name a form of illegal fishing, I've probably caught someone out. And Philippines has all of them. Yeah. Philippines has almost every illegal fishing form there is. I've seen it in the Philippines. How? Well, let's talk about the let's talk about the Japanese research boats that are uh, researching because they, they must. I mean, they, the Japanese. I love the Japanese. They do everything better than everyone else. How the fuck they haven't managed to figure out what's in a whale after researching for this many years <laughs> is beyond me. Um, and just to um, just to uh, finish off the Earth race yarn. So you actually um, you you ended up um, finishing the Earth race eventually. Um, the the day, uh, sixty days, twenty three hours. Uh, 49 minutes to circumnavigate the globe, which is incredible. And then you ended up um, getting rid of the boat, but then it got repurposed to take on the Japanese whalers, I right? didn't. I didn't get rid of the boat. So the first record attempt failed miserably with Matawa between my legs. Then had a second crack at it a year later, and, and we broke the old record by over two weeks. Since then, there's been about five or six boats have made an attempt on it. None of them have finished. Oh, the hardest shit. thing is to actually finish that thing. Like for you to get a boat around the globe is no, no easy feat. And so, you know, I'm still in the Guinness Book of Records. So. Yeah, boy. <laughs> when, yeah. when you're taking off on it the second time, because you got basically three quarters of the way through on the first attempt before you kind of pulled pin. Yeah. And then staring down the barrel of that, knowing what you'd been through, were the learnings from the first one that much more important to take into that second one to give you that confidence? Because yeah, you'd be staring, it's like climbing Mount Everest again after yeah, yeah. just just not quite hitting the let summit. Me, let me tell you what happened. In the first attempt, some of my leadership was a bit ordinary. And I can look at things like, oh, this problem, that problem. But in many ways, I didn't really lead the team effectively. And the second attempt, um, I think I did a much better job. I had a very similar team in terms of capabilities and that on the second attempt. But we made better decisions. You know, second attempt, still plenty of drama. We we hit a log offshore from Palau in the middle of the night. Huge amount of damage, bent prop, prop shaft, bent drive, bent propeller, Smashed engine mount, smashed gearbox, a five-meter gouge down the side of the boat. Huge amount of damage. We fixed that in three days in Singapore. And in many ways, we deserve the record after that. Like, it was an extraordinary achievement. It's the only job I've had in my life when every tool I picked up was the right sort of size or something. Yeah. And and the, it wasn't a pretty repair, but I knew, well, we, we've only got a couple more legs to go. We just got to nurse this boat round in one piece, and we will get the record. So... It was a, it was a, you know, something pretty extraordinary. And there's, there's been a couple times when I've been super proud. One of them was when Earth Race got in the water. Like I remember thinking, I have made the world's coolest boat. And then the second one was when we crossed that finish line. Like it was an extraordinary day, and you know, and it was a great piss up after that. I had a, <laughs> I had a sponsor who came in, he, and he he hired out a VIP lounge in a nightclub, and he paid for all the alcohol. We had about, probably had about a hundred people 
turned up. Like, you know, although you think of the boat and the crew on it, I had a ground crew and so many people to help refit the boat in, in Segundo in Spain or whatever. And so the sponsor of mine, Bobby, he said, right, I'll pay all the alcohol. I'm not paying any. If you just want a Coke, you can pay that yourself. As long as it's got alcohol in it, I'll pay for it. And <laughs> put on put on free buses, whatever. And I, I think our party finished at like 10 o'clock the following day. Like it was wow. A, it was a monst- monster night. Monster when, you, night. when you'd finished that, was that the end of it? Did you go, okay, cool, this is the, the relationship with this uh, vessel we're parting ways now? Or were you? did you feel tied to it and no, still I, feel tied to it? I still had about six or seven months of sponsor obligations. But I like the, the port tour was really important to the sponsors. Like you bring it into a boat show, in three days we could put 3,000 people through that boat. And so my sponsors liked it. Um, and in terms of my me trying to sell biodiesel and conservation and stuff, it fitted with what we were trying to do. So I still had those obligations to do. And then we took the boat, we we did an open day in Sydney and there was a, a journalist from Triple J come down and she was like, you know, you got the record, what happens now? At that stage, we only had about another two months of the tour left around New Zealand. And, and I sort of off the cuff, I said, oh, I might take it down to Antarctica and battle the Japanese whalers. And uh, sort of, and at the time, I think the first season of Whale Wars had come out, and one of my crew had had this on on her laptop, so she'd shown us. I thought, oh, that's pretty cool, but I didn't think I'd go down as part of Sea Shepherd, but I was tempted to it. And then that started a conversation in Sea Shepherd circles, and eventually they approached me, and I ended up going to Friday Harbour and meeting with the the founder of the organisation, and we put together a plan where I'd take the boat to Antarctica and try and wreak a bit of havoc, and yeah, and you Re- did and wreak a bit of havoc. You did. I tell you, mate, I was a, I was a pig and shit down there. Right? <laughs> But it's it not easy, not easy. Like, and you know, Antarctica is a very harsh environment. And our job was basically disrupt the whalers in whatever way you can. We did naughty stuff, eh? Like we were doing prop fouling, where you dangle steel cables with floats and stuff in it, and rope and that, and you try and entangle their propeller. Highly illegal. Like under maritime law, you you're not allowed to do that stuff, eh? But Antarctica is this no man's land. There's no one with jurisdiction, ah. and so it's not. So if let's say, like in the end, we managed to to prop foul the Nishinmari, 8,000-ton vessel. We got them dead in the water. By It was the first time we ever got that boat dead in the water through all the years that Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd were going down there. And we so we got this this wire cable wrapped around their propeller. Uh, and But so under Japanese law, I could be prosecuted in, Japanese, in Japan if they could prove that was me. Or I could be prosecuted in New Zealand under New Zealand law because the boat was registered in New Zealand. But... Japan doesn't want to come to here and create a circus. They got to get me to Japan first, which of course I end up doing yeah. subsequently. <laughs> but what what happened? So, so we we were doing stuff like we would shoot rotten butter onto their deck, and you know the rotten butter <laughs> smells pretty bad. So we were doing that, and so we were just we were just wreaking havoc. And one of the main tactics we had was as well we would sit on the stern of the Nishimaru. So the Nishimaru is a processing ship. The harpoon boats, small and agile, they go out, harpoon the whale and kill it. Then they bring it back. They pass a cable up to the processing ship and then they tow it for a few minutes and it gets pulled up the slipway up the rear of the boat. So there's a couple of minutes that the whale is in the water. I had a cunning plan. I wanted to take a 50 cal gun and lace the bullets with cyanide and or lace it with wasabi, which looks kind of like cyanide, and run a media campaign in Japan that these whales have been tainted with cyanide. Is your whale meat any good these days? And so it's the one tactic we had that would devalue the whale in Japanese eyes. So I had permission, but they wouldn't, the, the leader of Sea Shepherd wouldn't give me permission to take a gun, but he gave me permission to take a bow and arrow. So I took down this bow and arrow, and then on one of the days we were sitting there, Shoot! I said, let's have target practice, and you know whoever's the best shot gets to shoot a shoot a whale. It's a dead whale, mate. Yeah. And, mm. and so, 
And so there's a and I sat my cyanide license here, and I went and I said I said there's a little exam that you sit, and so and so that gave me I could then go buying the cyanide, all right, and and then I had a whole bunch of wasabi, which looks like I didn't want to go putting cyanide in the water, but we ran we we filmed with this TV show Wales, we filmed me putting cyanide wasabi on the on the on the arrows and explaining what happened, and then when my boat got run over, the Japanese turned up and found four arrows in the water. And they, they then put this press release out about, you know, Pete Bethune has got lethal force bow and arrow on his ship. Oh, Christ, I got, you know, I got, I got a 50 cal and I, I got <laughs> AR-15 and I got all sorts of, you're worried about a bow and arrow. <laughs> and I was, you know, and the Japanese have got, they, they use 12-gauge shotguns sometimes to kill the whales. They've got explosive harpoons. It was a non-issue. But Sea Ship had put out a press release saying we would never take a bow and arrow on our vessels. It's a banned weapon. Like, well, and I remember thinking at the time, why would they say that? Like, mm. like it's, it, you got you don't stand to gain anything. But now we're being dishonest. Yeah, and it came to bite me in the ass many years. Um, so, a period later, it was on January sixth, twenty ten. My boat got run over by the security boat. So we were waiting to be refueled. The security boat came over, and they sort of turned to starboard. My guy driving, he sort of tried to accelerate away, and they end up busting the boat in half, basically. But busted off the bow of it. Um, and so after that, then Sea Ship had made the decision they wanted to abandon the boat in Antarctica. Keep in mind, I've sold the boat at the stage. I don't own it, and it's leased to Sea Ship for a dollar a year. This all gets a bit complicated. But anyway, that, that, at the end of it, um, that kind of freed me up. And I remember thinking, I'm going to go back to Japan as a prisoner. And I tried five times and failed. In the day, it's very hard. They've got anti-boarding spikes, these big spikes. As the ship roll, these spikes come up and down, and they're about two metres apart, every one. And so, and so it, was, it was really hard to get on. They had pepper spray. They had these called impulse guns, but it's a, it shoots. They use it for crowd control. And you can, yeah. you can cover like a tennis ball court with pepper spray in the space of four or five seconds. So they're pretty, pretty lethal things. And so they had these. And so we couldn't, we couldn't get behind these guys. And so there was this cat and mouse game of us sick around. We'd fire in the rotten butter up at them. I'd made a big spud gun. And I, we drank a hot – and VB – VB Victorian bit of beer fitted inside the spud gun, so we had a big night the night before drinking all this VB, filling these with rotten butter, and then putting the caps on, and then firing <laughs> them. And I had a dive tank on my back using just the the primary regulator that put out about three hundred psi. So, so we, we were sitting there shooting, and then we went and shot a whole lot of red paint down the side of the Nishin Murray. So the Nishin Murray had a big sign "Research" down the side, and so we painted red red splots all through this research sign and then they, they tried in the court case later they tried charging me for the repainting of the boat which is a lot of money but I didn't, didn't have anything <laughs> yeah. so, so anyway but but what, what I'm leading to when on one of the occasions so he's got the the Japanese security guys running around the boat trying to stop me from boarding they fired their impulse guns forward and the spray comes back over them and they end up doubling up on the ground in pain and what happened uh, number of months later, I'm back in Japan being tried for a bunch of things. And one of the things they convicted me of was assault. And they claim that that injury, those injuries were caused by me firing the rotten butter. But if you watch the video, it's obvious that they sprayed themselves. It's really obvious, but um, never said, you know, so, I, so what happened was the mission became board the boat that ran you over. And I, five failed attempts. And I sat down with the engineer one night and I said, 
We can't do it in the day. The only way to do this is at night. But Antarctica at night is quite tricky. Like there's icebergs floating around and it's never flat. It's always big seas. And you've got this boat with these anti-boarding spikes. We're on a jet ski that's three and a half metres long. And these spikes are two metres between each one. But there was one spike missing where they would put a fender down when they refueled. And so we picked this up on some photographs. So we knew there's a very narrow place where we could put our jet ski and where we wouldn't get smacked up by these anti-boarding spikes. And so we, we put this plan together, slowed, slowed down just fractionally so I get the jet ski in the water. I've got an Animal Planet cameraman on the back. He's fearing, like he's done seven seasons of Deadliest Catch. He said he's never put his camera down until this night. And as he said, he said, lady, he said, I genuinely thought I was going to die that night. Oh and and the, the jet ski, back then the jet skis weren't that big and this thing was nearly tipping it over. And so I made him, I said, you need to lay down. This is not possible with you sitting upright. So I got him basically clinging on the back down low. And we went in the first time, smacked against the side. And and I, I sort of got part way up and then I was standing there, but the boat rolls a lot. And as it came down, the water came up about to my maybe the top of my thigh and just swept me off. And then it's like definitely quiet. It's cold. Water's cold there, eh? And I've got black. a flare, a pitch black. Yeah, I've got a flare. And I'm thinking, so my, what I was going to do when I got on the, if I got on the Shonamaru, my first thing to do was radio Larry, my, my driver, and say, the Kiwi has landed, is what I was going to say. Um, and so he's listening on the radio. He doesn't know I fell in. And so I'm, so I'm in the water. I've got a flare ready to go. My radio's not working because my radio got, got wet dumping in the water um, and then so he's listening he said he can't see me and he's, he didn't know if I fell in but there's nothing on the radio so he assumes I fell in he comes back and next thing I just see this jet ski nearly run me over <laughs> Whoa, happy to see you climb back on but it was I had a lot of I had a lot of kid on me and I remember thinking I've only got two or three attempts of me and I'll, and I'll be too and sooner or later they're going to hear us like the jet ski and smacking into the side and on second attempt same thing kind of happened, but the, the water only came up to about my knee, so I managed to remain on there through that rolling down, and then as it came out, pulled a knife out, cut a hole in the net, and jumped on. And I, I knew I'd created a bit of history, eh? Like, it, it, it was a pretty special feeling. Like, it had been a lot of work to try and get on that boat, and now I'm on the boat that ran me over. Uh. And I, so I, I sort of... I <laughs> What's hit, the protocol when they, when they find you on board? Well, I, was, I wasn't really sure how that was going to play out. <laughs> so I, I, had, I wanted to have the helicopter come in to film when I went and confronted the captain. As, as one is a safety, like I was worried they'd chuck me overboard and then I could get put, picked up by chopper. Although that would be, you know, three metre seas. That's going to be an interesting exercise. Mm. How you, but anyway, that was, my, that was my cunning plan. Might be able to drop a rope down or something. Um, <laughs> but the other thing was, it was, you know, Animal Planet, the cameraman and film crews all over this. Like they were saying, this is the biggest story we've ever had in Antarctica. Like if you pull this off, um, it is going to, it is going to open the whole, this whole whaling thing all, all over the world. Um, and so, you know, I got on board. I hid for the, the next three or four hours until daybreak. Um, I, I went down through the, the aft part of the ship, went down inside. All the hatches and stuff were open. And then right on daybreak, Sea Shepherd got the helicopter out and they filmed me as I went in and sort of knocked on the, on the door of the bridge. And there's and, oh and there's early guys, like one of them reaches over and locks the door. I was like, you know, come on, mate, you got 50 hatches back there all open. Like if I want to come in, you vote. Isn't <laughs> <it>? <laughs> anyway, and then, the, and then the captain come out and he, doesn't, he thinks I've jumped off the chop and he's looking for a boat and looking around. He doesn't know I've been on his boat for four hours. Um, and then event, and then he went to go back inside. I was cold by now. I was freezing. Eh? Like I got quite wet when we fell in the water. And uh, so I'm like, Ugh. so. And he, as he goes back inside, I just put my foot in to stop the door from closing and 
jumped inside. It's nice and warm inside. And then, like, talk about a party that you're not welcome at, eh? Like, you know, and none of them knew what to do. So I, I jumped up on the front and I sort of – I sat there for a while and then the radio went off. So Sea Shepherd called them and were saying what my demands were. So my cheeky demands were – I was demanding $3 million to replace the boat they'd run over. And failing that, I was refusing to leave their boat sort of thing. And so then, you know, then the sat phones started going off and there's all sorts of phone calls. It was about an hour before they came and searched me. Like I'm sitting there, I could have easy, I could have easy taken that, that bridge with just a little Glock or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and then the, you know, they finally hit home. Like they were angry. They were super angry. And, and especially there was the, the head of security. He was the guy that gave me the hardest time in, in, on the Shonamari. The rest of the crew, after a couple of days, they were pretty nice to me. And Japanese, very respectful very respectful people and so they were pretty nice to me but the the head of security he was you know like every time there was another boat in the vicinity they wouldn't let me train and so I'd, I convinced him give me an hour upstairs every day to keep fit um and I had an ulterior motive for that I had a there was a buck knife that my girls had bought for me when earth race was launched and I'd use that to cut my way onto the boat I'd hit it in the upper deck and my plan was I was going to get this knife and when we arrived in Japan, I was going to have it on me and hand it over to my lawyer. And so so, so after – Why would you do that? Why, why would because you I knew that, I, that the knife was special to me. It was a oh, knife that oh, my daughters yes, so had bought for me. And, you know, when you're, when you're a mariner, most captains will have a knife. Yeah. And, and often they've got knives that are 20 years old that have been with them their entire life kind of thing. So, And the knife had become a strike. Like that knife that I used to cut the net, I realised, you know, if you auction it off, someone's probably going to pay five or ten grand for it. And it was a beautiful knife. So so I had this on the upper deck. And then and then every day I'd go up to the upper deck and I'd gradually move closer and closer to where I'd hidden this knife. And and at the start, they were they were super weary watching me. But then after about a week or so, they, they gradually, they just got easier and easier. And... Uh, and so I, I got the knife on one of the days. I'd take my T-shirt off, so I'd just be topless. And then, and then on one of the days, I did pull-ups immediately beneath where my knife was hidden. I slid the knife into my T-shirt, went down to my room. Oh, that's right. The yeah, so, security- so what are they? What are the, where do they put you? I'm thinking chained up in a gulag. No, they, they put me in one of the rooms right right by the, the mess where the crew would, would eat, and they put two guys outside keeping an eye on me. On the first day, that's right, The I said to the, the secu- head of security, I said – you know, if you could um, give me some pen and paper, I'd like to learn Japanese while I'm on your boat. At this stage, he's still thinking they're going to drop me off in Australia or something. And he, he said, he comes back and he says, no, a pen pen can be a very dangerous weapon. <laughs> and I was like, bro, I said, I'm not going to bother with it. I said, look, I've got a mirror here. Like, if really want to, I'm going to get that. I said, look, I'll rip that off the wall. I'm going to club you with that. I said, look, I've got safety pins in here. That's going to do a lot more damage in your eye than a pen is. Like, don't worry about me using a pen on you. 